Know why you couldn't figure this one, Keys? I'll tell you. Because the guy you were looking for was too close. Right across the desk from you. Closer than that, Walter. I love you, too. Welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we are discussing more film noir. And I promise this is not going to be just a film noir podcast, but we are going to be talking about some of the influences for Christopher Nolan's Memento. And we're going to get into Borges's Funes de Memorias and Nathan Nolan's Memento Mori, which was the short story basis for Memento. And then finally, we're going to end our discussion with some talk about Billy Wilder's double indemnity. I mean, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if this turned into a film noir podcast. It's a pretty great genre, but also no, yeah, I think yeah, a lot yeah. of other people do it really well and uh, no need to crowd up the space further. But this is what we must do. The film noir is is the thing in the first couple of Nolan features, so. We must I mean, this is gonna step into the shadows. In, it's going to turn into a Batman podcast here pretty soon. So get the film noir while you can. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but first, uh, to kick things off, uh, did you find any uh, Christopher Nolan news or Nolan adjacent things out there on social media this week? Yeah, just uh, saw a few things here and there. The first one is that we are kind of living in kind of a warped Nolan verse because there is an astronaut named man who is the commander of the endurance spacecraft right now. The latest launch up to the international space station, astronaut Nicole Mann is the commander on the dragon capsule, which is named the endurance. So in our universe, man was successful in commandeering the endurance instead of not. (laughs) So Matt Damon, take some notes from from the real astronaut man. <laughs> I think the Reddit post, I saw this on Reddit, someone someone made this observation, is on the Christopher Nolan subreddit and user peekaboo underscore posted it. And so I took that and ran with it. And yeah, I think the post says Dr. Man, but I, I double checked and according to Wikipedia, <laughs> Nicole Mann only has uh, one size like a master's. So not quite Dr. Man, but you know, having having been around so many academics in college, I uh, I know the distinction is very important. <laughs> so you can go to space with a master's is what I'm hearing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you don't need to be a doctor. It, it's not rocket science. I mean, it is. Technically, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, they introduced mission specialists in the in the space shuttle days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so you definitely don't need a doctorate. The other couple things I found are that uh, I had saved a post from the Criterion Collection about, oh, a few weeks ago. When was that? Yeah. But now that we're here talking about memento influences, uh, David Lynch's Lost Highway, it will be released as part of the Criterion Collection. I don't have a specific date, but it's here and it's coming. And Lost Highway is notable because in the Nolan variations, Chris Nolan mentions that Lost Highway was a huge influence on Memento. It came out around the time he was writing the script. And then Double Indemnity was another big influence he was talking about, which is what we're talking today. So we chose Double Indemnity over Lost Highway, but want to give Lost Highway a shout out. Check it out on the Criterion Collection when it's available. 
Yeah, I've still, that's uh, one of the David Lynch ones that I have not seen yet, but I'm sure there would be a lot of great discussion about that, especially now that it's October. I've been seeing a lot of people post like, is this movie horror? Is this not horror for a lot of different movies? And people have definitely been discussing Lost Highway as definitely a horror movie uh, for David Lynch. Uh, So I need to get on that and check that out. It looks really, really good, but yes, definitely check that out. Yeah. And then the last one I have is just a post from, I've just started picking up several different film accounts as we've been doing this. So I can try and pull things here and there. And this account at film estate posted something about memento and just it's a reel of a clip from the movie and the caption talks about the enterograde amnesia being about the inability to form to form new memories and then the notable bit here is just a little fun fact is that during the 1950s doctors treated some forms of epilepsy by removing parts of the hippocampus and enterograde amnesia is you can't form new memories in the hippocampus for your short term. So doctors did these experiments or not experiments, but this treatment and the people who received this treatment then had short-term memory problems. So just, uh, Oh, Hey, you know, science. It's real. It could happen to you. It could happen to you. <laughs> I hope it does not. It's, it just sounds awful, but that's, that's all that I have for that segment. We'll link those in the show notes so everybody can check them out if they want to. And you have anything else there or do you want to go on to what you're the media you're consuming outside of our duties here on this on this podcast? Yeah, I don't really have anything. So I can go uh, into the next one talking about what I'm watching uh, when I'm not watching Nolan films. Um, have you heard of a, a little indie TV show called The O.C.? Oh, man. <laughs> I never where where'd that come from? Tell me more. <laughs> um, I never watched that when it first came out. Uh when I was what, twelve, thirteen years old when it first debuted, I think. Yeah, yeah, the mid two thousands. Yeah. Uh, it is very it's like watching a, a time capsule. It's been fun. Uh Taylor, uh my wife has seen all of it and we were browsing the other night just looking for something to watch and she mentioned that and I think that I just was, I, no one told me really what it was. I just saw the teenagers and thought that it was a big soap opera thing when I was younger and I didn't bother. And it is very much a a teenage soap opera. It is like in the same way that Veronica Mars is a detective noir show just mapped onto a high school show. This is soap opera mapped onto high school. But the first season, especially, I really liked because it was just a very a really good look at class and wealth and the distinctions of all of that and how that plays out among generations of different families and you know what it means to come from nothing and build something and then or come from something and completely screw your life up i have not gotten to the uh the mm, what you say bit yet on it (laughs) um we just actually just before we recorded tonight we got to an episode where i thought I kind of figured out a little bit of the twist. And then when they fully revealed it, did not see any of that coming. And it was, it's great. It's been fun. Uh, So I've just been kind of catching up on old TV from the mid two thousands that I didn't watch when I was a teenager. (laughs) Stop it. Um, Yeah. Well, your description of your impressions of the OC were pretty much mine are pretty much mine still since I haven't watched it. And I do not know of this twist of which you speak the, I, I guess I have avoided any memes or anything of it over the years. So maybe I'll check it's that out no, at the very least. Yeah. It's also fun to watch 
old bands that got big around that time, like the episode we just watched, The Killers were in it right before Mr. Brightside went big. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're, they play at uh, one of the little bar meeting shop places that they have, and it's really fun. Nice, nice. I also am required to point out the redundant nature of the phrase high school and a soap opera. I mean, oh, it's the same yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting, though, that the you end up, most of these shows, you start to care more about the kids than you do the adults, and the, the adults is always like the B-plot to the main character. But you really do care a lot about the adult stories and the kids' stories in this one, I'm finding, and I like that a lot. Very good, very good. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm not as as seemingly uh, mocking as I'm being other. I, I uh, <laughs> no, I'll maybe someday I'll I'll check it out. It's not really if on my radar. But... The first season is you could watch the first season if they had never renewed it for another series or another season at all. That first season would be a pretty good all encompassing look at the show's ethos and it tells a complete story in and of itself. So definitely. Sure, sure. Now I'll uh, I'll try to store it in the memory and see what happens. <laughs> uh, as for me, again, same status update as last time. Really, I haven't done much reading or watching outside of what I've been doing for this. Except I did watch my new Blu-ray of Batman Begins just to no, check and make sure it was cool. all good and clear. Because I, for my birthday, I went to Half Price Books and picked up a good handful of Nolan Blu-rays on the cheap. And I just want to make sure I'm, I'm a little paranoid about some previously owned things. You know, I'll definitely buy them, but I just want to make sure they work and are good, especially with discs. Cause I remember the days of having to rent stuff. Oh God. And then you, <laughs> there's nothing more annoying than renting a DVD from, for me it was Hastings and bringing it home and then oh, playing and then five minutes and it starts skipping the hell out of itself. And there's nothing you can do because no one ever decided to treat this with courtesy or decency and scratch them up. So I'm happy to report my Batman Begins Blu-ray is perfectly fine and we'll be ready for when we get there. <laughs> Very good. Did so, you watch the whole thing or you just tested it a little bit? Oh no, I just put the whole thing on while I was doing nice work things and just kept an eye on it made sure it didn't do anything stupid so yes i'm very glad uh nice now that you. i've done my yelling at a cloud chastising <laughs> people from 10 years ago for not treating dvds properly we can move on and talk about something it's, of substance <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's the the oc batman christopher nolan noir podcast um, no one was expecting this. No. All of his twists. But today we're going to be discussing uh, Memento Mori, short story by... So he's credited as Nathan Nolan in the Esquire short story that is the basis for this. But in Maybe the, do a double take, yeah. Yeah, in the Tom Schoen book, he is referenced as Jonah Nolan by Christopher Nolan and everyone else that interviews him. And then on credits for movies, it's Jonathan Nolan. So it's it's all the same guy. It's his brother. But uh, someone with yeah, multiple Nathan, identities. Ooh. Yeah, Nathan Nolan is the byline on Esquire. So we'll say that. And then Funes the Memorius by Jorge Borjas. And again, Double Indemnity by uh, my man, Billy Wilder. Oh, yeah. So why did we choose these, Marshall? 
Well, the first one, Memento Mori, is the basis for the film Memento. So it seemed like a reasonable choice to check that out and see what Jonah wrote. And then uh, Funes the Memorius, Borges, uh, as discussed in the Nolan Variations, was a massive influence on Nolan and his work. He first encountered Borges' work when he was in college (laughs) with a short film by a previous student of the film school, which was never released because they didn't have the permission of the estate, apparently. But then when Nolan was the president of the film society, he organized a night of screenings and included this film in it. I don't know about the permissions, right? But he did it and he, everything's fine. <laughs> so he saw this sh- student short film of it. And then that prompted him to go check out a bunch of Borges' works. And he was hooked. And it lets it like basically one thing he does to this day is he keeps copies of Borges' work everywhere and just gives them out wholesale. <laughs> At least that's what the description of is basically is in the book. So, yeah, I like that. How he said he has multiple copies at his house and his car at his office just so he can pick up and go wherever he needs to. And he just forgets that he has them. But he it's always somewhere near him. Yeah, yeah. But kind of like his, his security book. <laughs> yeah, books. yeah, yeah. And so this is the first Borges short story we'll be discussing on the podcast and future ones we'll discuss a couple more at least because there's some influence on inception there mm, yeah, and very much. you know just based on reading that one i'm very much looking forward to more and then double indemnity uh, as i mentioned a little earlier during the chapter in the nolan variations that was discussing memento christopher nolan calls this one out along with lost highway as a big influence on memento so we decided to do double indemnity. I don't remember when exactly we made our choices, but it turned out we chose out of the past and double indemnity, which are two of the most highly regarded film noir productions of all time. So at least we get some some heaping helping of the good stuff. Yeah, been very it's been very good to us the uh, the film noir in the last couple episodes. So the well does not run dry. No, no, no. So I think we're ready to get going and talking in depth about these things and the standard before we get started spoiler alert for all these materials and any offshoots of things we may be reminded of we are no holds barred you've been warned so let's get started all right so first we'll kick it off with the memento mori short story uh, and you can find this on esquire we'll link to it in the show notes and this is as a brief summary synopsis, uh, it's very much like the movie Memento. A man wakes up in different areas and does not know where he is and looks around to figure out what's going on and sees that he's written himself various notes on post-it notes or on, in some cases, tattoo on his own body. And then in other cases on the ceiling when he's laying in bed and he looks up and he sees something that he's written to himself. All the while, another unseen omniscient narrator is writing to him, telling him that he probably isn't going to remember anything because of some unknown incident and that he needs to figure out how to remember everything before it goes bad. Yeah, and the genesis for this story was a conversation between Jonah Nolan and Chris Nolan when they were driving from Chicago to L.A. when when Chris was moving there and Jonah presented him the idea, John had been in college in a psychology class and had heard about 
anterograde amnesia and he had it had gotten his wheels turning in his mind and so he was talking to to chris about that and what it might be like to experience that and possibly make a story about it and in jonah's telling of it he says that my brother went really silent and that's when i knew i had him because when he goes really <laughs> quiet like that you know he's thinking really deeply about something and that you really caught his attention so during that drive they discussed this whole idea they tried to talk about how you can make it into a film and chris kind of just commissioned jonah to write a story and then from that chris wrote the screenplay for memento so jonah kind of talks about kind of almost chris sort of standing over his shoulder metaphorically continuing asking him like oh do you have the, the story ready yet i want to write my screenplay so that's how this story came to be yeah and had you um read this at all before we started doing this or did you check it out while you watched memento for the first time earlier or was this your first time reading it yeah i had actually never read this before so yeah my first time and it was interesting seeing what chris nolan kept and what he altered or expanded on i mean obviously this is just a short story but significant differences like any adaptation so yeah i uh i did like it didn't love it i would say the, yeah, the thing about yeah. it is kind of it's tom Sean describes it it's kind of like it's more like a character sketch a little bit empty and in terms of not much expanding on the characterization for things but i think more of it most of my enjoyment was kind of just seeing okay this is what the film was based on very cool in terms of like an actual story i was like yeah it's fine yeah i was very surprised just reading it to see how much christopher nolan took it and ran with it because the the seeds for everything are there right like the post-it notes and the tattoo and the letters and you can see the genesis of him slowly figuring out the crime that he did commit but it never really gets into like too much of plot it's very just like prosaic and very uh, just a lot of observations about the world mostly uh filtered through like a very like la uh, noir lens there were a lot of good lines of dialogue that i highlighted or not really even dialogue just narration that i highlighted yeah um, yeah the one that stuck out to me that I really liked that could have come straight from Chandler or Billy Wilder was the unseen narrator speaking to the protagonist, Earl, saying, you sure as hell can't hold down a job. Not too many professions out there that value forgetfulness. Prostitution, maybe. Politics, of course. Of course. And yeah. Uh, just I could easily imagine, you know, like Marlowe or someone saying that in a voiceover. And that was mostly when I, when I got from that. And then also the, I don't know if this was intentional or not, if they were operating on the same wavelength for the double indemnity stuff when they were talking about it and when Jonah wrote it, but the line, it's also another narration line and the joke you're telling, well, it's got a punchline. I just don't think anyone's going to find it very funny. And then in double indemnity, our main character, our main insurance salesman has a line there saying, do I laugh now or do I wait until it gets funny? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So there's there's just a lot of echoes in that. Maybe that was intentional, maybe not. Maybe it was rattling around there when they were writing it. But the thing that the short story mostly reminded me of though is something that has absolutely nothing to do with Christopher Nolan and that's story of your life, which is the short story that Arrival was based on. Oh, um, okay. Which, which also uses a switch in tenses to signify 
either time change or change in narration who's telling the story which is the way that this short story does that in the way that the movie uses black and white and color yeah um, yeah which i thought was interesting but that was the first thing that i thought of was oh this is he's doing what ted chang did with the story of your life but that is has nothing to do with christopher <laughs> nolan but it is a great story if you want to go find that and look it up yeah you mentioned the unnamed narrator that discombobulated me a bit when it started changing perspectives me too story what i came to view it as is in the notes i asked myself the question you know who's the opening narrator is it some kind of teddy like character you know teddy in the in the film being right Benzeliano's companion sort of and then i finally figured out wait a minute to me at least i just figured it's earl in letters to himself the main character's name is earl it's gotta be yeah he's writing these letters to himself and i thought that was kind of clever the only thing yeah i just didn't like the pov changes or just completely abrupt there's no formatting besides the the change in tense and and pronouns to make you realize oh something has shifted here and it's a little bit distracting because all of a sudden you're reading a third person narration and then all of a sudden it's second person talking to you yeah i'm just going to blame the editors of esquire for this for not (laughs) choosing to do for that formatting maybe in the print Um, version it was because the online version that we have is just i'm surprised it wasn't on like the wayback machine or something right right but it's definitely it's more disorienting than anything in the film which is kind of (laughs) maybe saying something because you'd expect a film where the scenes are presented in reverse order to be a little bit confusing but this one yeah, it, it distracted me from trying to book, sometimes focus on it, on the subject matter with kind of that. But that's the copy edited in me talking. Honestly, that's, <laughs> you know, where's the clarity? Dang it. But more on some of the general things I noted was I like how it ended because it just stops mid-sentence with no to. punctuation at all, which is just absolutely, you know, I don't know how proficient this was but it's in nolan's films chris nolan's films he talks about how they all the endings kind of just he cuts it and they're done at kind of a a spot that you're maybe not totally expecting just to kind of jar you into the fact that film's over and the story does that here too so i appreciated that whether it's a not really a nod but kind of a a consistent thing that you see going forward in in nolan's movies yeah, that was the the same experience I had. I thought, talking about formatting, I thought for a minute that it had cut off and they didn't transfer the whole thing. And then I realized, oh, he's he's just cutting it off in the middle of it, which is what they do. So, yeah, actually, like right when I read it, I was like, oh, it's, it's over. Cool. Like this is a pretty neat way to end it. But overall, it was, yeah, kind of more bleak and nihilistic than something resonant for me. But yeah, yeah. I don't know how much of that is. Well, the movie's this good and I know what the movie does. and it has more room to breathe and expand on things. But like I said earlier, Tom Schoen pinpointed that pretty well by saying it's more like kind of a character sketch, something like a storyboard kind of thing. Yeah. Like a good jumping off point for whatever it would eventually become. Um, yeah. Yeah. A lot of great paragraphs and one lines of descriptions and narration though, especially the bit towards the end about even he starts talking about time, about how every man is broken into 24 hour fractions. And then again, with those 24 hours, a daily pantomime, one man yielding control to the next. I wonder how much of the, how much they influence each other, how much Christopher and Jonah influence each other on these things. I'm sure a lot, but 
where does like one person get the idea and where does the other person run with it? Where does that line start and stop is interesting to me the more I read these. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned in our last recording about being a fly on the wall to listen to conversations between Chris Nolan and Emma Thomas. And now I'm wondering to be a fly on the wall for their conversations or the, or the Thanksgiving dinners where instead of arguments, they're just discussing the complexities of of plot mechanics and all this stuff. (laughs) How do you turn Um, backwards and all that stuff? Yeah. Right. Right. But on the time things, uh, another quote that I highlighted about time is, um, where he says time is theft, but the passage of time is all it takes to erode mm-hmm. that initial impulse of revenge. He's talking about time yep. is theft. Isn't that what they say? And time eventually convinces most of us that forgiveness is a virtue. Conveniently, cowardice and forgiveness look identical at a certain distance. Time steals your nerve. But a time mm-hmm. being theft, I guess we should note that in the Nolan variations, the chapter where they talk about memento, the theme of the chapter, the title of the chapter is time. And mm-hmm. so Nolan, Chris Nolan talks a little bit about some of his views on time. And he says something in that chapter, like I, I read these things talking about mortality rate and I kind of laugh because it's 100%, isn't it? Yeah. And, and he's commenting on the use of time or time as a, as a device in his films and how that's always like a battle for him and in, in real life because it's just this thing that you're always fighting, this elemental thing that every person deals with. And so just the time is theft line appearing in the short story. I was like, all right, yep, you guys are definitely related. <laughs> but I like that. And then with time and memory, I guess shifting slightly to the memory part of it, it starts out in Earl's hospital room. And at one point... Yeah. There's a desk and it says there's a desk covered with post-it notes, legal pads, lists, books, framed pictures, well, literal mementos and things. He's already started trying to manage his condition. And that line reminded me actually of a book I read several years ago called Moonwalking with Einstein. It's by Joshua Foer, who is the brother of Jonathan Safran Foer, who wrote Eating Animals and other things. And Joshua Foer is his brother continuing the theme of brothers writing things. But what Joshua Foer did is write about memory in this book. And the framing of it is that I forgot what hooked him into looking into things about memory, but what he ends up doing is interviewing people who win memory competitions and things. And he learns their techniques about the memory palace and things like that. And he enters the U S memory championships, uh, I don't know that's the official name, but he enters them just over the course of a year, learning the techniques from these, these memory gurus and he ends up winning. So he, he writes the book, frames it and he writes about memory. But I just remembered he talks in there about how much these days in modern times, we externalize our memory You know, we have, we put all of our to-do lists on our phones. We don't have to remember as many things as we used to because we have digital technology to help us out. So when yeah. you externalize that, you don't have to, I couldn't tell you like my grocery list from last week because I put it in my phone and then, and then it's cleared now. And I don't even remember it. I don't have to put that effort into remembering it. So. Yeah. Even in, uh, even in double indemnity, the, I thought about that towards the end of the movie when he tells another character to go 
take a nickel and go call someone and he gives them the phone number and the name and the first name that you need to ask and the message. And I was like, when was the last time that I had to do that and recall a number to do that for someone else? Because if I had to do that the whole time I would be walking on the phone, I would be like eight, five, seven, three, eight, five, like there's the repeating the number to make sure that I would get it right. And that's just a thing that people could do back then. So that was weird that you brought that up. Cause I was thinking about that today while watching that movie. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, that with we as people living in the modern age, it's interesting that Earl's situation is that literally all of his short-term memory has to be externalized for him to even function. He writes all these post-its and letters and gets tattoos of things. But in some ways, how much more different is that really from who we are these days who have to, like me having to write my grocery list down. I have to clear my head. I just write out all the thoughts that are clouding it and then I can get it out. And then kind of like a pensive to take the Harry Potter detour here. Um, but yeah, I just, yeah, yeah, the externalization of memory really caught me this time going through this. And I do it with taking notes for the podcast. Like I have a thought and then I'm terrified, like, oh God, I'm going to forget this. And I'm scrambling for a pen or for my phone to tap it in before I forget. I'll be making breakfast and I just need to get it down before I forget so I don't so it doesn't escape my notes. What are some other notes that you took, Jake? Mostly what I, I really took from it was the adaptation process, I guess. Sometimes when you see something and you see that it's based on a short story or based on a book or something, you know, you may wonder like how much of that was lost or gained in the process of the adaptation. And this one really, I feel like, was truly just a collaborative result like we talked earlier about the seed for the idea being planted on that road trip right and then he thought that christopher nolan thought about the movie and then uh, if i recall correctly he asked Jonah, he's like hey can you write something and then he wrote something and then they kept working on the story and then kept going back and forth with each other and then finally after the story was published then christopher turned around and was like okay i'll make the movie out of it and so you don't really you might not see any of that on the actual page when you read the story, but then when you watch the movie and compare the two, you can definitely see where they complement each other a lot. And so I thought the collaboration and the adaptation process was, was just getting a, a behind the scenes look at that while reading the Nolan variations and reading everything else with that was interesting to see. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it is a good time to note that this is their first story collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. So it begins a long and fruitful process that they'll go back to many more times there are some things that i did note and we can save it for our discussion of the film with like themes of revenge and getting it and with a condition like that does it really matter mm -hmm. it does have a good a good old circularity for the beginning and the end um like of the course. ending yeah. circles back and repeats some lines from early in the story with some letters that earl's written to himself Earl has just a really awful recursive existence. It talks about you're going to forget everything in one of the letters to himself. You're going to forget a few more minutes. You'll be going to the door and seeing the photo of you at your wife's funeral again. And to repeat that over and over, like all the time, it's just, oh man, so, so ridiculously awful. There was another like slight reference to that I caught or interpreted. Well, maybe a deliberate reference from Jonah, but there's, he mentions a photo of, he describes Earl looking at a photo in, a, in his hospital room. For a moment, this looks like a hall of mirrors or the beginnings of a sketch of infinity. The one man bent over looking at the smaller man, bent over reading the headstone. 
Earl looks at the picture for a long time and just the big man looking at the smaller man looking at the headstone reminded me of Doodlebug with the, the like you said, the turtles all oh, the way yeah. down. Yeah. Yeah. And then otherwise, the only other big note that I appreciated was uh, you always like to hear certain lines being lifted from whether it's things you read that are adapted. And then Jonah did, I guess, gets credit for writing the line, you know, after all, everybody else needs mirrors to remind themselves who they are. You're no different in a yeah. letter from Earl to himself. And that line is pretty much word for word put into the film because not much else was not that everything needs to be word for word, but right, right. It sticks out when you're reading it. So there's one of the, one of the best lines in Memento. And so I was glad to see it here, but I think, yeah, we'll save some more discussion of how this interacts with the film for next time, I think. So if we want to move on to Funes, I think we might be able yeah. to. Yeah, I'll let you do the summary for that one. Sure, sure. So Funes the Memorius is a short story by Jorge Luis Borges, an Argentine writer from the early 20th century. And the short story is about a young man, I believe he's a Uruguayan, who a Uruguayan cowboy, who one day riding a horse gets thrown, has an accident, hits his head, essentially. And when he wakes up, he has the ability to recall everything with perfect crystal clear clarity and in minute detail. It's like synesthesia, but for memory. But it's like even beyond memory, he can. One of the key examples is he says, I can look at this wine glass and I see not only the glass, but I can see the grapes. I can see the memory of the grapes being pressed into the wine that went into this glass and things like that. So it's told from the point of view of, of the narrator who encountered this young man's name is Irenio Funes. And this narrator meets him and hears the tale relayed to him. And it really is just this discussion of what absolute, I think it's Tom Schoen calls it in the Nolan variations, not necessarily, not really perfect memory as much as it is just omniscience. So just recounting this character's omniscience and ability to see everything. So basically it's the total opposite of, or almost the complete opposite of, of Leonard and Memento and Earl and Memento Mori. He knows everything. He can remember everything. Yeah. And that's almost presented as being worse than not being able to remember anything. It's just being burdened with so much of this knowledge at all this time. Like the first part of the story is the narrator asking for the time and him being able to spout off to the exact second what time it is without even looking at a watch. And that was before his accident. Yeah. 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 But I guess maybe to go slightly in order it's a really really quite short story yeah you're not kidding but it's another story kind of told through recursion the narrators it's the narrator the narrator having this memory about funes's memory or ability with memory and it's also like circular in the fact that in the very first or second sentence of the entire story the narrator says gives us what happened to funes right up front he said and he is dead and Funes dies yeah. at the end of the story. So it all comes back. You know, Memento does the same thing. It starts with the scene of Leonard has just killed Teddy. And that's eventually where we're going. And it's moved up and or down that 
narrative spiral, as Tom Schoen says at one point. So yeah, it's just it really just ticks kind of all the all the check marks you would expect of Nolan esque things because this and plenty of other works by Borges are what what guided Nolan in a lot of areas. Yeah, and most of the notes that I had on this one were just about how it influenced Nolan. We talked earlier about how he keeps copies of Borges's books all over the place, and in that same chapter where it mentions that anecdote, he also mentioned that. In a very memento-like moment, he will start reading a Boris story and start going, saying to himself, oh, I don't know if I've, if I've read this one before. Let me keep reading and see if I can recall it. And then by the end, he's like, oh, yeah, I've read this before, but it all kind of adds up in the end. And he said that that happens to him multiple times. Yeah, um, so which it's I a, love because that actually kind of happens with me in Nolan's films, or at least with the the way I've spaced out some of my rewatches over the years, because I get to some of the films and I'm trying to remember, oh yeah, what's the twist here? I don't know. And then it happens. I'm like, oh yeah, it's great. So that resonated yeah. so much with me. I couldn't believe that quote. Oh, I could hardly believe it. Yeah. And he, he uses that, no, which I thought was funny just because that's all about, that's what Memento is. That's what the short story is. This was very much, I don't know if they intended it this way, if Horace intended it to be a, a horror story, but I read this and just thought that it was a very, just very haunting, like the thought of being like every second, every day of your life, being able to remember everything at any given point. Uh, yeah, that is something I, that is a curse. <laughs> do not want. Yeah, just in time for spooky season. Yeah, with that, I kind of noted Funes doesn't have so much a memory palace as a, a memory galaxy. He's kind of a walking version yeah, of yeah. the library from Borges's story, The Library of Babel, which was described in the Nolan Variations about an infinite library containing all that it is given to express in all languages. These days, it reads like an allegory of the coming of the Internet. And off of that, the Internet has an overwhelming amount of information. I just think about how much is out there and I get a headache. And just to imagine that being your mind, it makes me want to just, you know, jump off a roof. Yeah. <laughs> Not really. Um, <laughs> Godspeed, Funes, yeah. just to be clear of it. <laughs> um, yes. And I noted Funes is like the most extremely online before online even existed with what he has. But yeah, the curse of his existence is that time again is like the enemy here because every second that passes adds another entire universe to his perception, more richness and more sharpness. And that burden just keeps crushing him down. That's good. And, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. 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 I actually hit upon that thought before I like two sentences before I read in the story, Funes could continuously discern the tranquil advances of corruption, of decay, of fatigue. He could note the progress of death, of dampness. He was the solitary and lucid spectator of a multiform, instantaneous and almost intolerably precise world. So I felt really good about myself for making that connection before they explicitly outlined it in the story. So, yeah, there. I think, again, with this, there, there's a few other things we might want to talk about, but we want to leave that for in context of actually discussing in the wake of Memento. But if there's anything else you want to mention right now, you are certainly welcome to. Uh, no, I think I'm going to keep all of that to the actual film discussion later. So. The only other thing I do have left is for both this and for memento mori with both of the short stories i was reminded of nolan 
quoting the line in the Nolan Variations near the end in the chapter they're talking about knowledge. He says something to the effect of, you know, what good is knowledge if it brings no profit to the wise? So you have Earl, who is trying to record all this information for himself and leave notes, but does it really do anything for him in the end? Like what has really been productive about this? And then Funes has the ability to see everything that has ever happened ever, essentially. But it mentions, uh, the narrator mentions, I suspect that Funes was not very capable of thought in the sense of he has all this information flooding his senses that he can't generate original thoughts, really. Like he can't see the forest for the trees, as it were. So just a good through line to kind of meditate on, you know, like you have all this knowledge or you are trying to leave yourself all this knowledge, but you can't do anything with it. What is that really worth? And I think that's something we will definitely look at once we get to Memento. But now we can move on, I think, to the one visual we watched for this episode, and that is Double Indemnity. Would you like to uh, introduce that one, Jake? Yes. Uh, so this is from 1944, again, directed by Billy Wilder, starring Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson as the main principal players. It's in black and white, 107 minutes long, and the brief summary synopsis from IMDb, a Los Angeles insurance representative lets an alluring housewife seduce him into a scheme of insurance fraud and murder that arouses the suspicion of his colleague, an insurance investigator. Oh, insurance. Yes. That's insurance investigator. That's uh, who knew that so many stories could spring from a well of, of insurance. I was very <laughs> surprised by how much insurance talk was in this movie. Very much in the vein of, I did not know how much about the inner machinations of divorce that I would learn from marriage story. Uh, there's a lot oh, here. Oh, wow, yeah. Oh, man. There's a lot here. Yeah, there's a lot here about the process that people go through to determine if something's an accident or not. We have a lot of people at our house right now looking at the ceiling and roof stuff from some stuff that happened from a storm. So we've been dealing with a lot of insurance people lately. And so watching this, I was just like, oh, all right, that's you better watch out Well, they do that. Yeah. And in the uh, words of uh, I was also reminded of a great bit from Larry, the cable guy of all people, okay. <laughs> a one, a one liner that he did at the, the end of a blue collar comedy tour where he said, I believe that sometimes you got to wreck the truck to get the insurance money to make the truck payment <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> as they're plotting their scheme in this one. I was like, that's all they're doing. They're just, oh, wrecking yeah. the, they're wrecking the truck. I, I'm seeing the guy. From our first scene with uh, with Barton Keys now, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the guy who lit his own truck on fire and he yeah. saw right through. Him. Mm-hmm. But yeah, both this and Memento are really about how denied insurance claims can drive the plot, aren't they? Yes, exactly. Um, so a more in depth plot summary uh, for a more of a big beat uh, thing. Walter Nepp, he is the insurance adjuster. He is going to sell a policy to the husband of Phyllis Dietrichson. And he is trying to get a, uh, a life insurance policy with a double indemnity clause, which says that if you die as the result of an accident, the policy pays double. But when he shows up, husband's not there. Phyllis is just there. And she seduces him and uh, 
she's tired of his she's tired of her husband he she's tired of her husband her husband says her husband knocks her around as a drunk and is just a bad person very much uh out of the past came after this movie but it's a lot of the same beats same genre tropes of the femme fatale here and then that causes old neff to fall madly in love with her and then the two of them decide that well if he signs this double indemnity clause on his death is ruled an accident if they can kill him and make it look like an accident, they can pocket double the money, and then they can run off together and be together. It's a foolproof plan. It's very simple. They come up with a perfect crime, perfect murder, except it does not become perfect in the end because Edward G. Robinson, a.k.a. Barton Keys, is the man that works with Neff at the insurance agency, and he is so good at his job that he figures out that the death in question had to have been murder, but he just can't figure out. an accident. Not an accident. Yeah, just can't figure out who exactly did it uh, and pulled the trigger if there ever even was a gun. And so then the whole rest of the movie is Neff and Phyllis trying to avoid getting caught while Neff also tries to figure out if Phyllis is double-crossing him. Spoiler alert, she is. Uh, Shocked. I am shocked. Shocked. And then it all ends, as you would expect, in a film noir with more murder and the protagonist dying and getting in way in over his head and not understanding the world that he lives in. Whew. Yeah, man. It's I mean, it's just another great film noir. Uh, we should note that one of the credited co-writers of the screenplay was Raymond Chandler, who yeah. wrote the Big Sleep novel, which we discussed two episodes ago. So speaking of Neff, man, is he ever like driven by libido? Yeah. Man, this movie for for all the the darkness and for all of the the talk about murder and uh film noir stuff in it, this movie is very light on its feet with one liners and joke is funny in a lot of places with a lot of jokes. Oh, yeah. uh, it is especially in the first about twenty minutes, horny as hell. <laughs> so horny. <laughs> At least Neff is. I don't know. I kept going back and forth at the end on if Phyllis really was in love with him or if uh, she was putting on an act for him specifically for this whole scheme. But man, he's like, he's ready to kill for her after like two meetings with her. I mean, it's the Hayes code, so they can't show them like having sex or anything like that, but like heavily implied. And yeah, like, I mean, I don't know. I I watched this with Taylor. I had it on in the background uh, while I was working and she kind of just got sucked into it and was watching it too. And then I was like, I don't know, like maybe after a year I would be able to be like, yeah, I would kill for you. Maybe <laughs> not after like two weeks, two days. I don't know. And this guy's like ready, like two hours in. He's like, yeah. I'm gonna... Yeah. Yeah. And actually that was something that I thought about too, when I watched Vertigo a month or so ago in that with some of these stories and maybe it is a little bit, Hayes code influenced but just sort of almost out of nowhere these characters just start making out and like they're bantering they're talking and you can tell they're like oh there's some sexual tension there but then all of a sudden then they're just you know making out in the middle of the room and you're like wait a minute where did this come from and so it happens in vertigo Action. um and it happens here phyllis shows up at neff's apartment and they're in the early stages of their scheme and then all of a sudden, yeah, they just like start kissing and he pulls back. He's like, I'm crazy about your baby. And I'm like, wait a minute. Wait, this so is all moving so fast. So, so many babies would put Reese Witherspoon in Walk the Line to shame. 
take a shot every time it says baby and you'll be drunk at the 45 minute mark. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the one of the top letterbox reviews, but we'll get to those in a minute. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, essentially it says that. Yeah, take a shot every time they say baby. Oh, great minds. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um but to get more more into the the Nolan part of it all, the biggest thing, obviously, it is a voiceover narration from the future telling about an event that happened in the past. Only it's such a good the, voiceover. Yeah. It's so good. Because it, the, the framing for the narration is at the very, very beginning, we see Walter's just been limps into his office. He's been shot. And then he starts recording what he doesn't call it the confession, but he basically is recording his confession on a dictaphone. On yeah. Damn dictaphone. Yeah. Hell yeah. Like talking about it, Nolan things. We're going full analog, baby. But just how that's right. It's not just out of nowhere. Like there's a there's a really great reason for it. And it's really well done. So, yes. And then, of course, we take that into memento with Leonard's voiceover being his internal voice telling us a lot of like how he's experiencing the world. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's great. Yeah. Only for the narrative to then catch up with itself at the end. Once we well, the audience catches up with what he's telling us. And then obviously set in L.A. Memento set in L.A. They're both insurance investors. But then also the thing that I thought was really interesting was he, in the book, uh, Nolan mentions uh, his experience with stuff with Hitchcock and with movies where you almost start to root for the villain because of how well framed everything is and how how much you you sympathize with characters. And I was reminded of him talking about the part where uh, you're almost rooting for Norman Bates to get the car to sink in the lake in Psycho when the car won't start after he kills yes. Charles's husband and they just kind of look at each other like oh no what's going to happen what are we doing and then the f- car finally starts and they just look so relieved and then I was I was sitting there watching that going why do I they just killed a guy in cold blood for insurance money why do I care about this and it's because you're just so drawn into everything from the beginning because the plot is that interesting I mean, the whole thing is about, are they going to get away with murder or not? Yeah. Uh, I'm really, really glad you brought that up because uh, that's like my money quote for this, (laughs) this entire (laughs) thing. So I think I'll, I'll read what, what he said since I highlighted it. So Christopher Nolan said, I think Memento speaks to the moral relativism of film, which is very good at getting an audience to accept different moral codes than they would in everyday life. You have the internal set of ethics that are largely in cinema defined by the point of view. Then you have the experience, usually after you've seen the film, of reassembling your mind and going, hang on, what are the ethics of that if you step outside of this guy's point of view? So while we're watching it, we're like, yeah, go. This guy's dead. Don't get caught. You know, and there's another scene as an example when Phyllis comes to visit Walter, but Keys is already at Walter's apartment. So she's in the hallway and then he opens the door and she's right behind it. And that scene, I love that was almost like a screwball type thing with the way that, yeah, everything had to be set just right. Yeah. Um, It also reminded me of out of the past when he's down in Mexico and he thinks every woman that walks through the bar door is Kathy. Right. Right. And then also I mentioned, I noted in the short story of Memento Mori, we're kind of clinging on for the ride as Earl progresses and he kills somebody at the end, whether he's got the right guy for his revenge or not. But you know, yeah. we're, we're on the ride with him. We're hoping, right, yeah, go, you know, kill somebody. But 
given his condition, is it even the right person? We don't know. We're left hanging. And so I know we've talked about this in a past episode, at least, but that last bit of the quote where after you've watched the film and you're thinking about things and going, wait a minute, what am I rooting for? You know, it's Breaking Bad all over again. But the one example I thought of for that was that after the film, I've told you this before in other discussions, that the example I've I've used is of Darth Vader as the Star Wars universe expands. The more they do, like let's take Obi-Wan Kenobi, for example, the series that they show they do a lot of scenes inside the Jedi Temple during Order 66 with what Anakin does and, you know, show him like actually striking down children. So the more they do that and show that Darth Vader looks even worse. And so that makes me think about, oh, his redemption, like it's just kind of flips the switch in a moment, but that looks more implausible to me. But when you watch Return of the Jedi, it still kind of works because you're seeing it through Luke's point of view as his son. But then as right, these things right. keep expanding, I'm thinking, well, what is hold on? How does the rest of the galaxy feel about this? They lived, you know, like 20 years under the tyranny of this guy being the the most visible bad guy. And the old expanded universe touched on this in at least one place that I know of. But, you know, it's with all that in mind, it kind of almost waters down Vader's redemption for you. But yeah, the moral relativism of, this, of it all. I love that you brought that up. So <clears throat> that's definitely a huge, huge thing. in a lot of this Nolan films going forward. Yeah, because with double indemnity, not only do they kill the husband, but he ends up killing Phyllis in the end. And so it, all of it was basically for nothing. And then he gets shot in the end too. So, yep. But yet as you dictated. still, <laughs> yeah, as dictated, but yet you're still kind of hoping that he makes it, but for what? So he can make off of this money and make it to the bus station on time and get out of everything. Like it's interesting the way that it can kind of make you root for him in the moment. Um, yeah. Because Sean mentions in the variations that, he talks about the heroes of Memento and Inception lose themselves in fantasy, not because their reality is unpleasant, but because their reality is intolerable. And so I think that motivation kind of translates to both Walter and Phyllis. Well, Phyllis, you could say what she says, her reality is intolerable. Maybe it's just because she's just rotten all the way through like any good femme fatale. But with Walter's motivation, it besides just being <laughs> super hot blooded. There are a couple of things it yeah. touches on that he thinks he's smart enough to get away with it. He knows everything inside and out. He's just outlining all the things they could do and how they can play the system. And then also how he kind of feels undervalued at his job. And he tells this like through the narration as he's dictating his not a confession mm -hmm. to Keys. Yeah. He says like, you know, we were smarter than you. Like you didn't figure this out because Keys does come to the conclusion that Dietrichson was murdered, but he comes to the conclusion that it was the wrong guy until the end. So not only is, is Walter horny, but he's also driven by professional jealousy because at one point in the movie, Keyes offers him a job, kind of a promotion or. Uh, yeah. 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 And he said, like, you're the top salesman, but you're also just a little less dumb than everybody else here. And then Neff turns him down and then it kind of hurts Keyes. And he's like, OK, well, I guess you actually aren't as much as I thought you were. Yeah, but yes, these intolerable realities for all of our main characters, driving them to do what they do. The other thing that I got from this was when they're planning the murder and the, the whole plot is they're going to 
in order to make it look like an accident, they're going to make it look like he got hit by a train. So in order to do that, they're going to kill him first and then put his dead body in front of a train track. And then well, the train you mentioned the train of it all yet. Yeah, if yeah. you think of Inception, but yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Waiting for a train. Waiting for um, a train. Yeah. But before that, there's a bit of a wrinkle because the husband breaks his leg. And so he's in a cast. And so while they're planning it, the, the scheme is they're going to kill him. And then Neff is going to assume the husband's identity and then get on the train. So it looks like he still made the train. And then they're going to, uh, Phyllis is going to meet him there and then put the body in front of the train. And then they'll say that he died. And then Neff walks off scot-free. Foolproof. Um, but they, <laughs> but they, they're going about it, talking about almost as if it's like a costume and a set design piece with her saying to him, don't forget the cast. Make sure you've got this correct. Uh, oh, make sure yeah. the cast is over your leg. The uh, crutches will make it look better. The crutches will make it look better. Don't acknowledge anyone. Be sure to really play your part. And then he's, you know, he has to act as Dietrichson on the train. And he ends up talking to someone else, which ends up being part of his downfall. Once Keyes realizes that there's a witness who saw him get on the train. Oh, yeah. Mr. Jackson from Medford, yeah. Oregon. I'm a Medford man. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Oh, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Never would have bummed a, a cigar. And so yeah, he, everything just unravels. It's uh, yeah. yeah, but he they come at it very much from the perspective of almost like they're putting on a play or making a their own little movie of how it's going to be their own little make believe show. And so I can see how that would have appealed to Nolan as well. Just the idea of creating your own, not necessarily your own reality, but creating your own your own meta, uh, your own, yeah, your own map, your yeah. own movie, uh, your own little, little show within a show there. Because again, like this is like all film noir, this and uh, a lot of his, uh, his whole MO with movies is playing within the system and then beating the system at its own game. There's a bit earlier in Double Indemnity where Neff talks about how he fantasizes about what if I just burned my house down and started from scratch and played against the house and won and went out and planted my own flowers and did everything else, but I had more money and everything. Just that, that idea of, you know, how much can you play around in the system without losing is, has pervaded a lot of the films that we've watched for influences for this. And will also continue to be a big influence for him, for his own movies in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I'm glad you mentioned that too. I, I feel like we're really, really vibing on this, on this one, because <laughs> They have the staging and the, and the play and, and all that. Yeah, Right when Neff takes the call to hear about Dietrichson's broken leg, I almost jumped out of my chair because then I remembered, oh, my God. Now, you haven't seen Better Call Saul is what you've told me, right? No, I have not. OK, but when they said that, a thing clicked for me because I've almost finished all of it. But. At one point in the series, so I'll keep this spoiler free since you have not seen it. They basically lift this entire plot for for a better call Saul plot thread throughout a season. It's I mean, I was oh, like, oh, the broken leg and changes things around and putting on a show type stuff. Like he, like, fakes, he fakes being someone with a broken leg or someone on his staff or something. Well, they're trying to do a similar thing, essentially. Mm, uh, okay pulling something where someone's looking like somebody else but then this person they find out that this person's broken their arm so they have to scramble to adjust to that essentially and 
I mean, and it's played so because Better Call Saul is amazing and they play it incredibly well. It's just so brilliant. But then I remember just watching this. I was like, oh, this is where they got it. Because also a consistent thing throughout the show is actually Saul watches a bunch of classic films throughout it. That's just a thing that happens from time pretty regularly. You'll see him watching TV and it's just some black and white classic. And so the fact that this led to all that in the show and the fact that they watch classic movies all the time. I mean, Vince Gilligan you know, knows all this stuff. So just, it was just a nice moment. To, I, I recognize that reference. <laughs> <laughs> Leo pointing at the TV. Yes. Yes. Captain America understanding things. <laughs> Other small things that I noticed. Um, the fishbowl lit up in the middle of the living room before Phyllis kills the lights. Uh, to hide the gun reminded me a lot of Doodlebug and the fishbowl there. And then again, just I mentioned this right off the top when I first started watching it, though, it was just the banter between the two of them is unmatched. It's wonderful. It's great. Like right from she talks about being fully covered when he's saying, I'm here to you know renew the insurance. Oh, and, she, and she's and the standing speed, there in the a bathtub. The speed limit, wrapping him on the knuckle for speeding line. Just great. Well, they stretch it to the absolute uh, most of with that. Yeah. yeah. Edward G. Robinson, as Barton Keyes gives <laughs> gives somebody instructions on how to open a door. Oh, that just absolutely oh, killed man. me. <laughs> it's like, do this, turn it to the left, pull it toward you, now walk <laughs> out. Oh, man. Just, yeah, Raymond Chandler really, uh, really outdid himself with, with the dialogue here. Like any good, like any good noir. Oh, yeah. Any other little things that I might have? Oh, I did want to give a special call out to the score for Double Indemnity because, you know, yeah, right yeah. from the first frame when the credits start going, oh, man, it grips you. And it, uh, Miklos Rosa did the score for this, a great golden age, quote unquote, film composer. And it's threatening and ominous and absolutely perfectly done. So watch Double Indemnity and pay attention to that because it, it definitely adds a whole lot to something that didn't even need that much help in the first place. So it only, only sends everything up. Also the fact that uh, you could apparently get a fancy Southern California home for $30,000 back in the day. So wistful. <laughs> I wish. Man, we, this is completely off topic, but I, we had a real estate or real estate. We had an HOA meeting the other day and some of the people here in our unit said that they'd been here from the, since the eighties. And they paid something like forty, fifty thousand dollars for it back in the eighties, and I wanted to oh, cry. Like, oh my god! Uh, Inflation. Let's turn this into an economics episode. No, <laughs> but yeah. Anything else you wanted to say about double indemnity? I guess we should share our letterbox reviews before we forget that. How could we do that? Yeah, I'll do that. Um, let me find mine here. It goes well with the last point I made about the banter and dialogue. Uh, mine is from Sydney at Camp Art. And she said Billy Wilder's dialogue, but this is, it's probably a combo of Chandler and Billy Wilder. Yeah. But Billy Wilder's dialogue makes Aaron Sorkin and David Mamet look like kindergartners. <laughs> <laughs> and as I was watching this, the especially the keys scenes where he's explaining why something couldn't be suicide or why something has to be an accident and the things that they have to do and understand, and especially statistics. that scene, especially the scene where he uh, is talking to Neff about trying to give him that promotion. 
and he says, you know, that we're, we're the cop, we're the executioner, we're the father confessor, we're the inspector, we're everything all in one. That scene too, I was just watching that going like, what a great, like who should have known Raymond Chandler and Billy Wilder. But um, yeah, this is definitely something that I feel like Sorkin would try probably maybe to do if you wanted to try to do a, a film more like make the banter like that but oh no, yeah can't, can't touch no. that that was my review I think and I picked that because <laughs> you took the one that I initially was gonna do that I liked a lot so I'll let you talk about that one sure this one is by I think it's one of the top ones one of the top three that you see by user Ellie who is at David Finch her. Yeah, that's a pretty good name. But uh, their review is every film noir. This femme fatale has seduced and murdered 17 people. Me. And I hope she seduces and murders me next. <laughs> um, yep. Walter Neff speaking. And actually, I couldn't help it. I saw a couple more that I wanted to share because they're just so good. There's uh, a recent one by user um, Akshat Bardwaj, who is at Akshat B935. If only the movie was in color, then he would have seen the red flags. <laughs> uh, he would have caught on to the to her earlier plots. Yeah, he, he would have known. And honestly, I think you I think you should read yours, Jake, because I really loved yours. Oh, it, that one made me made me laugh too. So oh, please. Uh, yeah. Uh, you can find all of these woody thoughts that I'm about to share at letterbox at 808 Jake underscore. And my review, my thoughts on this movie is uh, go directly to horny jail. Do not pass. Go do not collect a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> oh, bravo. Well done. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to maybe just use that as the only one, but then, yeah, I figured, I don't know. Don't want to toot our own horns too much, but. I figured that that one needed to be shared. I was kind of like on Letterboxd as I was watching this and then Taylor was in there and I came across one that said <laughs> something to the effect of this is the, uh, a warning for simps everywhere. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. And Taylor was like, so you basically, like if I came in and was like, we need to go kill someone, you would probably be like, all right, bet when and where. And I was like, no, it'd have to be a good reason. Like, have you, have you seen the town <laughs> with uh, Ben Affleck? Uh, no, I have not, but I know what there's you're talking a, about. There's a scene where his best friend in that movie is Jeremy Renner. And there's a scene where Jeremy Renner shows up to Ben Affleck's apartment and he just shows up with some baseball bats and some other guys with bats and like track suits and was like, I can't tell you what's what we're going to do. I can't tell you where we're going to go. But all I know is we're about to hurt some people and there can be no questions asked about this. And then he just pauses for a minute and he's like, all right, whose car are we going to be taking? And so, <laughs> I was like, maybe I'd do that. I don't know. There'd have to be a reason for it. And she was like, hmm, mm-hmm. so I don't know. We'll I'm sensing a distinct lack of strong Boston accent in your uh, in your relay of that quote. I, I'm not going to. There was very much strong Boston accents in that movie. I'm not going to attempt that. But, yeah, uh, no, no need to. <laughs> no, no. Oh, man. Well, this one was fun. Yeah, yeah I, I thought the others haven't been, but we've had a good time here. This, yeah, filling in a lot of uh, gaps in my uh, film blind spot knowledge here as a result of this. And so, yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, this was the first time you watched it. And, and I had seen it before at TCU and uh, well, it was officially an English department class, but it was about film adaptations. So oh, it was cool. good times. 
I felt really good that I had seen a movie that you hadn't seen because I know you've uh, <laughs> you've seen vastly more than I have. But but uh, I'm glad you've seen it now. Whether good or bad thing, but yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, you know, it's just a uh, it is what it is. Indeed. All right. Well, we'll be back again next time, further rotting our brains with more consumption of cinema. But in the meantime. <laughs> I don't know about the brain rotting with Memento, although it is about a deteriorated capacity for memory. But uh, in the meantime, where can people find us, Jake? Yeah, if you want to go to social media, you can find us at Friends at Dusk Pod on Instagram and at Friends at Dusk on Twitter. And you can find me, Instagram and Twitter at Jake Harris 4. And then again, if you want to read all of my wonderful, funny thoughts on movies uh, and Letterboxd, that is at 808Jake underscore. Um, and where can they find you, Marshall? I am on Instagram at marshall.doig and on Twitter at marshalldoig and then on Letterboxd at mdoig. And yeah, if you want to go check us out on Apple Podcasts, please like and subscribe and leave us a five-star rating so that we can get uh, higher ranked up in the views there. And anywhere where you can find podcasts, just give us a rating and a review. Five stars all around. Uh, and you can find our list of resources and books and short stories and movies that we have talked about today in the show notes. And next time we will be discussing Memento. All right. Well, thanks again, Jake, for, for joining me on this on this journey. And I think that'll do it for us this time. And we'll see you again on Friends at Dusk. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye.